0: Audio number 102, another sermon by Jonathan Edwards, which in reality is a treatise entitled Religious Affections. This is part eight. As we have mentioned many times, the great religious bondage of the will awakening was ignited in Jonathan Edwards' church. In 1734, then the great evangelist who preached over 18,000 sermons from Maine to Georgia from 1740 to 1770—that is, George Whitfield—arrived from England in 1740 and helped further this great awakening. For in 1740. Many of our founding fathers were less than 10 years old and thus were products of this great awakening. George Whitfield's face was almost as well known as George Washington. Benjamin Franklin, a friend of George Whitfield, printed his sermons, but by 1746, Satan had sowed many tares amongst the wheat, and so it was becoming very difficult to delineate between the true Christian and the counterfeit Christian, or the almost Christian. And thus, Jonathan Edwards wrote the treatise entitled, Religious Affections. At the time of Jesus, most all of the religious leaders, the religious Bible teachers, were counterfeit Christians. And thus, Jesus went outside established church and he took four ignorant fishermen and a tax cheat to mock the educated religious leaders of his day to demonstrate that he who was the true Jesus could not be known by understanding or by the fig leaves of morality the true jesus can only be known when our father in heaven reveals to his elect his son jesus the only way the true jesus can be known is by revelation jesus himself makes this perfectly clear in matthew chapter 16 verse 13. When Jesus came in to the coast of Caesarea Philippi he asked his disciples saying Whom do men say that I the son of man am verse 14 and they said some say that thou art John the Baptist some Elijah others Jeremiah or one of the prophets verse 15 Jesus saith unto them, But whom say ye, my disciples, that I am? Verse 16, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, And Jesus answered and said unto Peter, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee but my father which is in heaven has revealed it to you now this revelation comes at the moment that we are made a new creation a spiritual creation and Jesus calls it being born again. And Jesus uses the word born because we, as the John Q. Public of America, when we think of the word born, we think of our natural birth. The word born implies that we have no fingerprints of cooperation on that birth. Our spiritual birth is the same as our natural birth. We had zero zip nada. Fingerprints of cooperation on our conception or our natural birth. It is something that happened to us. We just showed up here on earth. And the same is true with being born again or being made a new creation. We have zero zip, not a cooperation in it happening. At that moment that it happens, we become a spiritual creation. There is nothing in between the natural man and the spiritual man. We are either 100% a natural man or we are 100% a spiritual man. The Spirit of God can come upon a man and work upon the natural man as the sun reflects upon the moon. But the new creation is like a star. It has its own light. The Spirit of God dwells in the new creation and jonathan edwards exhaustively proves that the spiritual life is completely different than the natural man the spirit of god can work upon the natural man to replicate the true christian as the sun reflects light upon the moon but that moon will never become a star because that moon has no light within itself whereas the star has light within itself this message is absolutely 100 percent needed in america today for our fast food free will theologians hand out salvation like they're handing out candy and thus our churches are being filled with counterfeit Christians. Our churches have become like banks in 2008, in which by law they were required to give loans to people that could not afford those loans. Well, what happens? Eventually, those people can't pay back their loans. And so what happens? The banks go bankrupt or the federal government has to bail them out. The exact same thing happens when these fast food free will theologians hand out free Christianity like candy. The churches become bankrupt with false Christians. And if we think of the sun as the church and the moon as the nation, when the church becomes bankrupt because it is filled with a false doctrine and thus false Christians. America becomes morally bankrupt because America is simply a reflection of the church. And that is why this message of Jonathan Edwards is so important in America today because he is exhaustively delineating the difference between a fake Christian and a true Christian, an almost Christian and a true Christian, a counterfeit Christian and a true Christian. This is just a great message from Jonathan Edwards, and all of us Americans should hear this. But before we go to Jonathan Edwards' message, let us turn to John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the second most read Christian book in the world, some say, published in 1678. John Bunyan also wrote Grace Abounding, which is his personal testimony of how he became a Christian, how he became a new creation, and then his struggles as a Christian. And in this excerpt, we will find that he, John Bunyan, had fallen personally into some sin, and he was trying to restore his fellowship and the struggles that he went through to restore that fellowship. And thus, as we listen to this excerpt, let us as Americans learn to wrestle with sin, as did John Bunyan, in order that we might restore our fellowship or further enhance the fellowship that we do have with the Lord Jesus. And thus, without further ado, let us pick up the reading of Grace Abounding at paragraph 184. Now, also, the tempter began afresh to mock my soul another way, saying that Christ indeed did pity my case and was sorry for my loss. But for as much as I had sinned and transgressed as I had done, he could by no means help me, nor save me from what I feared. For my sin was not of the nature of theirs, for whom he bled and died, Neither was it counted with those that were laid to his charge when he hanged on a tree. Therefore, unless he should come down from heaven and die anew for this sin, though indeed he did greatly pity me, yet I could have no benefit of him. These things may seem ridiculous to others even as ridiculous as they were in themselves. But to me, they were most tormenting cogitations. Every one of them augmented my misery that Jesus Christ should have so much love as to pity me when yet he could not help me. Nor did I think that the reason why he could not help me was because his merits were weak or his grace and salvation spent on others already, but because his faithfulness to his threatening would not let him extend his mercy to me. Besides, I thought, as I have already hinted, that my sin was not within the bounds of that pardon that was wrapped up in a promise. And if not, then I knew assuredly that it was more easy for heaven and earth to pass away than for me to have eternal life. So that the ground of all these fears of mine did arise from a steadfast belief I had of the stability of the Holy Word of God. And also from my being misinformed of the nature of my sin. Paragraph 185. But oh, how this would add to my affliction to conceit that I should be guilty of such a sin for which he did not die. These thoughts would so confound me and imprison me and tie me up from faith that I knew not what to do. But, oh, thought I, that he would come down again. Oh, that the work of man's redemption was yet to be done by Christ. How would I pray him and and entreat him to count and reckon the sin amongst the rest for which he died? But this scripture would strike me down as dead, Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. Romans six nine. Paragraph one hundred eighty six. Thus, by the strange and unusual assaults of the tempter, Satan, my soul was like a broken vessel driven as with the winds and tossed sometimes headlong into despair, sometimes upon the covenant of works and sometimes to wish that the new covenant and the conditions thereof might so far forth as I thought myself concerned be turned another way and changed. But in all these, I was as those that, jostle against the rocks, more broken, scattered, and rent. Oh, the unthought of imaginations, frights, fears, and terrors that are affected by a thorough application of guilt yielding to desperation. This is the man that hath is dwelling among the tombs with the dead that is always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Mark by 1, 2, and 3. But I say, all in vain. Desperation will not comfort him. The old covenant will not save him. Nay, heaven and earth shall pass away before one jot or tittle of the word, and the law of grace will fail to be removed. This I saw. This I felt and under this i groaned yet this advantage i got thereby namely a farther confirmation of the certainty of the way of salvation and that the scriptures were the word of god oh i cannot now express what then i saw and felt of the steadiness of jesus christ the rock of man's salvation What was done could not be undone, added to, nor altered. I saw, indeed, that sin might drive the soul beyond Christ, even the sin which is unpardonable. But woe to him that was so driven, for the word would shut him out. Paragraph 187. Thus I was always sinking, whatever I did think or do. So one day, I walked to a neighboring town and sat down upon a settle in the street and fell into a very deep pause about the most fearful state my sin had brought me to. And after long musing, I lifted up, I set my head, but methought I saw, as if the sun that shineth in the heavens did grudge to give light, and as if the very stones in the street and the tiles upon the houses did bend themselves against me. Methought that they all combined together to banish me out of the world. I was abhorred of them and unfit to dwell among them or be partaker of their benefits, because I had sinned against the Savior. Oh, how happy now was every creature over I was. For they stood fast and kept their station, but I was gone and lost. Paragraph 188. Then breaking out in the bitterness of my soul, I said to myself with a grievous sigh, How can God comfort such a wretch. Let us end there with John Bunyan's testimony and now pick up the reading of Religious Affections, beginning with last paragraph of section one in our last message, quote, On the other hand, though the Spirit of God may many ways influence natural men, yet because it is not thus communicated to them, As an indwelling principle, they do not derive any denomination or character from it. For there being no union, it is not their own. The light may shine upon a body, that is very dark or black, and though that body be the subject of the light, yet because the light becomes no principle of light in it, so as to cause the body to shine, hence the body does not properly receive its denomination from it, so as to be called a lightsome body, So the Spirit of God acting upon the soul only without communicating itself to be an active principle in it cannot denominate it spiritual. A body that continues black may be said not to have light, though the light shine upon it. So natural men are said not to have the spirit, Jude 19. Sensual, or that is natural, as the word is elsewhere rendered, having not the spirit. Section two. Another reason why the saints... And their virtues are called spiritual, which is the principal thing, is that the Spirit of God, dwelling as a vital principle in their souls, there produces those effects wherein He exerts and communicates Himself in His own proper nature. Holiness. Is the nature of the Spirit of God. Therefore, it is called in Scripture the Holy Ghost. Holiness, which is, as it were, the beauty and sweetness of the divine nature, is as much the proper nature of the Holy Spirit as heat is the nature of fire or sweetness was the nature of that holy anointing oil, which was the principal type in the mosaic dispensation. Yea, I may rather say that holiness is as much the proper nature of the Holy Ghost as sweetness was the nature of the sweet odor of that ointment the spirit of god so dwells in the hearts of the saints that he there as a seed or spring of life exerts and communicates himself in this his sweet and divine nature making the soul a partaker of god's beauty and christ's joy so that the saint has truly fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, in thus having the communion or participation of the Holy Ghost. The grace which is in the hearts of the saints is of the same nature with the divine holiness as much as it is possible for that holiness to be, which is Infinitely less in degree as the brightness that is in a diamond which the sun shines upon is of the same nature with the brightness of the sun, but only that it is as nothing to it in degree. Therefore, Christ says, John 3, 6, that which is born of the spirit is spirit, i.e. the grace that is begotten in the hearts of the saints is something of the same nature with the spirit and so is properly called a spiritual nature after the same manner as that which is born of the flesh is flesh or that which is born of corrupt nature is corrupt nature. But the Spirit of God never influences the minds of natural men after this manner. Though he may influence them many ways, yet he never, in any of his influences, communicates himself to them in his own proper nature. Indeed, he never acts disagreeably to his nature, either on the minds of saints or sinners. But the Spirit of God may act upon men agreeably to his own nature and not exert his proper nature in the acts and exercises of their minds. The Spirit of God may act so that his actions may be agreeable to his nature and yet may not at all communicate himself in his proper nature in the effect of that action. Thus, for instance, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and there was nothing disagreeable to his nature in that action. But yet he did not at all communicate himself in that action. There was nothing of the proper nature of the Holy Spirit in that motion of the waters. And so he may act upon the minds of men many ways and not communicate himself any more than when he acts upon an inanimate thing. Thus... Not only the manner of the relation of the Spirit, who is the operator to the subject of his operations, is different. The Spirit operates in the saints as dwelling in them, as an abiding principle of actions, wherein he doth not so operate upon sinners." But the influence and operation itself is different, and the effect wrought exceeding different, so that not only the persons are called spiritual, as having the Spirit of God dwelling in them, but those qualifications, affections, and experiences that are wrought in them by the Spirit are also spiritual and therein differ vastly in their nature and kind from all that a natural man is or can be the subject of while he remains in a natural state. And also from all that men or devils can be the authors of It is a spiritual work in this high sense, and therefore, above all other works, is peculiar to the Spirit of God. There is no work so high and excellent, for there is no work wherein God doth so much communicate himself, and wherein the Mere creature hath in so high a sense, a participation of God, so that it is expressed in Scripture by the saints, being made partakers of the divine nature, Second Peter 1, 4, and having God dwelling in them, and they in God, First John 4, 12, 15, 16, and chapter 321 and having Christ in them John 17:21 Romans 8:10 being the temples of the living God 2 Corinthians 6:16 6, living by Christ's life Galatians 2:20 being made partakers of God's holiness Hebrews 12:10 having Christ's love dwelling in them John 17:26 having his joy fulfilled in them, John seventeen thirteen, seeing light in God's light and being made to drink of the river of God's pleasures, Psalm 36, 8 and 9, having fellowship with God or communicating and partaking with him as the word signifies, 1 John 1, 3, not that the saints are made partakers of the essence of God and so are godded with God or Christ with Christ according to the abominable and blasphemous language and notions of some heretics. But to use the scripture phrase, they are made partakers of God's fullness. Ephesians 3, 17, 18, 19, John 1. One sixteen. That is, of God's spiritual beauty and happiness according to the measure and capacity of a creature, for so it is evident. The word fullness signifies in Scripture language. Grace in the hearts of the saints, being therefore the most glorious work of God, wherein he communicates of the goodness of his nature, it is doubtless to peculiar work and in an eminent manner above the power of all creatures and the influences of the Spirit of God in this being thus peculiar to God and being those wherein God does in so high a manner, communicate himself and make the creature, partaker of the divine nature, the Spirit of God communicating itself in its own proper nature. This is what I mean by the influences that are divine when I say that truly gracious affections do arise from those influences that are spiritual and divine. The true saints only have that which is spiritual others have nothing which is divine in the sense that has been spoken of they not only have not these communications of the spirit of god in so high a degree as the saints but have nothing of that nature or kind for the apostle james tells us that Natural men have not the spirit. And Christ teaches the necessity of a new birth or of being born of the spirit from this, that he that is born of the flesh has only flesh and no spirit, John 3, 6. They have not the spirit of God dwelling in them in any degree. For the apostle teaches that all who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them are some of His. Romans 8, 9 through 11. And having the Spirit of God is spoken of as a certain sign that persons shall have the eternal inheritance. For it is spoken of as the earnest or down payment of it, 2 Corinthians 1.29 and five, five Ephesians 1.14. And a having anything of the Spirit is mentioned as a sure sign of being in Christ, 1 John 4.13. Hereby know we that we dwell in him. Why? because he hath given us of his spirit. Ungodly men not only have not so much of the divine nature as the saints, but they are not partakers of it, which implies that they have nothing of it. For a being partaker of the divine nature is spoken of as the peculiar Privilege of the true saints. 2 Peter one four. Ungodly men are not partakers of God's holiness. Hebrews twelve ten. A natural man has no experience of any of those things that are spiritual. The apostle teaches us that he is so far from it. That he knows nothing about them he is a perfect stranger to them the talk about such things is all foolishness and nonsense to him he knows not what it means first corinthians two fourteen: the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of god for they are foolishness to him neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned, and to the like purpose Christ teaches us that the world is wholly unacquainted with the Spirit of God John fourteen seventeen, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him. Not, neither knoweth him. And it is further evident that natural men have nothing in them of the same nature with the true grace of the saints. Because the apostle teaches us that those of them who go farthest in religion have no charity or true Christian love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So Christ elsewhere reproves the Pharisees, those high pretenders to religion, that they had not the love of God in them. John five forty-two. Hence, natural men have no communion or fellowship with Christ or participation with him as those words signify. For this is spoken of as the peculiar privilege of the saints, 1 John 1, 3, together with verses 6 and 7 and 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. And the scripture speaks of the actual being of a gracious principle in the soul, though in it. First beginning as a seed they're planted as inconsistent with a man being a sinner, first John three nine. And natural men are represented in Scripture as having no spiritual light, no spiritual life, and no spiritual being, and therefore conversion is often compared to opening the eyes of the blind, raising the dead, and a work of creation wherein creatures are made entirely new and becoming new-born children from these things. It is evident that those gracious influences which the saints are subject of and the effects of God's spirit which they experience are entirely above nature, altogether of a different kind from anything that men find within themselves by nature or only in the exercise of natural principles and are things which no improvement of those qualifications or principles that are natural. No advancing or exalting them to higher degrees and no kind of composition of them will ever bring men to because they not only differ from that which is natural and from everything that natural men experience in degree and circumstances, but also in kind and are of a nature vastly more excellent. And this is what I mean by supernatural when I say that gracious affections are from those influences that are Supernatural. From hence it follows that in those gracious exercises and affections which are wrought in the minds of the saints through the saving influence of the Spirit of God, there is a new inward perception or sensation of their minds entirely different in its nature and kind from. Anything that ever their minds were the subject of before they were sanctified. For doubtless, if God, by His mighty power, produces something that is new, not only in degree and circumstances, but in its whole nature and that which could be produced by no exalting, Bearing or compounding of what there was before or by adding anything of the like kind. I say, if God produces something thus new in a mind that is a perceiving, thinking, conscious thing, then doubtless something entirely new is felt or perceived or thought, or which is the same thing, there is some new sensation or perception of the mind, which is entirely of a new source, and which could be produced by no exalting, varying, compounding of that kind of perception or sensation which the mind had before. Or there is what some metaphysicians call a new simple idea. If grace be, in the sense above described, an entirely new kind of principle, then the exercises of it are also entirely a new kind of exercises. And if there be in the soul a new sort of exercises which it is conscious of, which the soul knew nothing of before, and which no improvement, composition, or management of what it was before conscious or sensible of could produce or anything like it, then it follows that the mind has an an entirely new kind of perception or sensation. And here is, as it were, a new spiritual sense that the mind has or a principle of a new kind of perception or spiritual sensation which is in its whole nature different from any former kinds of sensation of the mind, as tasting is diverse from any of the other senses, and something is perceived by a true saint in the exercises of this new sense of mind in spiritual and divine things as entirely diverse from anything that is perceived in them by natural men, as the sweet taste of honey is diverse from the ideas of men have of honey by only looking on it and feeling of it, so that in the spiritual perceptions which a sanctified and spiritual person has, are not only diverse from all that natural men have after the manner that the ideas or perceptions of the same sense may differ one from another, but rather, as the ideas and sensations of different senses do differ, Hence the work of the spirit of God in regeneration is often in scripture compared to the giving a new sense giving eyes to see and ears to hear unstopping the ears of the deaf and opening the eyes of them that were born blind and turning from darkness unto light and because this spiritual sense is immensely the most noble and excellent, and that without which all other principles of perception and all our faculties are useless and vain. Therefore, the giving this new sense with the blessed fruits and effects of it in the soul is compared to a raising the dead and to a new creation. The new spiritual sense and the new dispositions that attend it are no new faculties, but are new principles of natures. I use the word principles for want of a word of a more determinate signification by a principle of nature in this place. I mean that foundation which is laid in nature, either old or new for any particular manner or kind of exercise of the faculties of the soul, or a natural habitat or foundation for actions, giving a personal Ability and disposition to exert the faculties in exercises of such a certain kind. So that to exert the faculties in that kind of exercises may be said to be his nature. So this new spiritual sense is not a new faculty of understanding, but it is a new foundation laid in the nature of the soul for a new kind of exercise of the same faculty of understanding. So that new holy disposition of the heart that attends this new sense is not a new faculty of will, but a foundation laid in the nature of the soul for a new kind of, of exercises of the same faculty of the will. The Spirit of God, in all his operations upon the minds of natural men, only moves, impresses, assists, improves, or some way acts upon natural principles, but gives no new spiritual principle thus when the spirit of god gives a natural man visions as he did balaam he only impresses a natural principle the sense of seeing immediately exciting ideas of that sense but he gives no new sense neither in there anything supernatural spiritual or divine in it so If the Spirit of God impresses on a man's imagination, either in a dream or when he is awake, any outward ideas of any of the senses, either voices or shapes and colors, it is only exciting ideas of the same kind that he has by natural principles and senses. So if God... Reveals to any natural man any secret fact as, for instance, something that he shall hereafter see or hear. This is not infusing or exercising any new spiritual principle or giving the idea of any new spiritual sense. It is only impressing in an extraordinary manner the ideas that will hereafter be received by sight and hearing. So, in the more ordinary influences of the Spirit of God on the hearts of sinners, he only assists natural principles to do the same work to a greater degree, which they do of themselves by nature. Thus, the Spirit of God, by his common influences, may assist men's natural ingenuity as he did Bezaziel and Aholiab in the curious works of the tabernacle, so he may assist men's natural abilities in political affairs and improve their courage and natural qualifications as he is said to have put his spirit on the 70 elders and on Soul as to give him another heart. So God may greatly assist natural men's reason in their reasoning about secular things or about the doctrines of religion, and may greatly advance the cleanness of their apprehensions and notions of things of religion in many respects without giving any spiritual sense. So in those awakenings and convictions that natural men may have, God only assists conscience, which is a natural principle, to do that work in a further degree, which it naturally does. Conscience naturally gives men an apprehension of right and wrong and suggests the relation there is between the right and wrong and a retribution. The Spirit of God assists men's conscience to do this in a greater degree, helps conscience against the stupefying influences of worldly objects and their lust. And so many other ways might be mentioned wherein the Spirit acts upon assists, and moves natural principles. But after all, it is no more than nature moved, acted, and improved. Here is nothing supernatural and divine, but the Spirit of God in His spiritual influences on the hearts of His saints operates by infusing or exercising new divine and supernatural principles, principles which are indeed a new and spiritual nature, and principles vastly more noble and excellent than all that is in natural men. From what has been said, it follows that all spiritual and gracious affections are attended with and do arise from some apprehensions, idea, or sensation of mind, which is in its whole nature different, yea, exceeding different from all that is or can be in the mind of a natural man, and which the natural man discerns nothing of, and has no manner of idea of. Agreeable to 1 Corinthians 2.14. And conceives of no more than a man without the sense of tasting can conceive of the sweet taste of honey. Or a man without the sense of hearing can conceive of the melody of a tune. Or a man born blind can have a notion of the beauty of the rainbow. But here, two things must be observed in order to the right understanding of this. Number one, on the one hand, it must be observed that not everything which in any respect appertains to spiritual affections is new and entirely different from what natural men can conceive of and do experience. Some things are common to gracious affections with other affections. Many circumstances, appendages, and effects are common. Thus, a saint's love to God has a great many things appertaining to it which are common with a man's natural love to a near relation. Love to God makes a man have desires of the honor of God and a desire to please him. So does a natural man love to his friend and make him desire his honor and desire to please him. Love to God causes a man to delight in the thoughts of God and to delight in the presence of God and to desire conformity to God and the enjoyment of God. And so it is with a man's love to his friend and many other things might be mentioned which are common to both. But yet, that idea which the saint has of the loveliness of God And that sensation and that kind of delight he has in that view, which is, as it were, the marrow and quintessence of his love is peculiar and entirely diverse from anything that a natural man has or can have any notion of. And even in those things that seem to be common, there is something peculiar. Both spiritual and natural love cause desires after the object be loved, but they be not the same sort of desires. There is a sensation of soul in the spiritual desires of one that loves God, which is entirely different from all natural desires. Both spiritual love and natural love are attended with the light in the object, the love. But the sensation of the light are not the same, but entirely and exceedingly diverse. Natural men may have the conceptions of many things about spiritual affections, but there is something in them which is, as it were, the nucleus or kernel of them, that they have no more conception of than one born blind has of colors. It may be clearly illustrated by this. We will suppose two men. One is born without the sense of tasting. The other has it. The latter loves honey and is greatly delighted in it because he knows the sweet taste of it. The other loves certain sounds and colors. The love of each has many things that appertain to it, which is common. It causes both to desire and delight in the object beloved and causes grief when it is absent. But yet, But that idea or sensation which he knows the taste of honey has of its excellency and sweetness that is the foundation of his love is entirely different from anything the other has or can have. And that delight which he has in honey is wholly diverse from anything that the other can conceive of, though they both delight in their beloved objects. So both these persons may in some respects love the same object. The one may love a delicious kind of fruit, which is beautiful to the eye and of a delicious taste, not only because he has seen its pleasant colors, but knows its sweet taste. The other, perfectly ignorant of this, loves it only for its beautiful colors. There are many things seen in some respect to be common to both, both love, both desire, and both delight, but the love and desire and delight are of the one, is altogether diverse from that of the other. The difference between the love of a natural man and a spiritual man is like to this. But only it must be observed that in one respect it is vastly greater, that the persons are in themselves vastly more diverse than than the different kinds of excellency perceived in delicious fruit by tasting, and a tasteless man, and in another respect, it may not be so great, as the spiritual man may have a spiritual sense or taste to perceive that divine and most peculiar excellency, but in small beginnings in a very imperfect degree. Number two, on the other hand, it must be observed that a natural man may have those religious apprehensions and affections which may, in many respects, very new and surprising to him and what before he did not conceive of. And yet what he experiences be nothing like the exercises of a principle of a new nature or the sensations of a new spiritual sense. His affections may be very new by extraordinarily moving natural principles in a very new degree and with a great many new circumstances and a new cooperation of natural affections and a new composition of ideas. This may be from some extraordinary, powerful influences of Satan and some great delusion, but there is nothing but nature extraordinarily acted. As if a poor man that had always dwelt in a cottage, and had never looked beyond the obscure village where he was born, should in a jest be taken to a magnificent city and prince's court, and there arrayed in princely robes and set on the throne with the crown royal on his head, peers and nobles bowing before him, and should be made to believe that he was now a glorious monarch. The idea he would have and the affections he would experience would in many respects be very new and such as he had no imagination before. But all this is no more than extraordinary raising and exciting natural principles and newly exalting, varying, and compounding such sort of ideas as he has by nature. Here is nothing like giving him a new sense. Upon the whole, I think it is clearly manifest that all truly gracious affections do arise from special and peculiar influences of the Spirit working that sensible effect or sensation in the souls of the saints which are entirely different from all that is possible a natural man should experience not only different in degree and circumstance but different in the whole nature so that the natural man not only cannot experience that which is individually the same, but cannot experience anything but what is exceeding diverse and immensely below it in its kind, and that which the power of men or devils is not sufficient to produce the like of or anything of the same nature. I, Jonathan Edwards have insisted on this matter because it is of great importance and use evidently to discover and demonstrate the delusions of Satan and many kinds of false religious affections which multitudes are deluded by and probably have been in all ages of the Christian church and to settle and determine many articles of doctrine concerning the operations of the Spirit of God and the nature of true grace. Now, therefore, to apply these things to the purpose of this discourse, from hence it appears that impressions which some have made on their imaginations ...or the imaginary ideas which they have of God or Christ or heaven or anything appertaining to religion... ...have nothing in them that is spiritual or of the same nature of true grace. Though such things may attend what is spiritual and be mixed with it, yet in themselves they have nothing that is spiritual nor are they any part of gracious experience. Here, for the sake of common people, I will explain what is intended by impressions on the imagination and imaginary ideas. The imagination is that power of the mind where it can have a conception or idea of an external or outward nature that is of such sort of things as are the objects of the outward senses. When those things are not present and be not perceived by the senses, it is called imagination from the word image because thereby a person can have an image of some external thing in his mind when that thing is not present in reality, nor anything like it. All such things as we perceive by our five external senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and feeling, are external things when a person has no idea or image of, of any of these sorts of things in his mind when they are not there and when he does not really see, hear, smell, taste, nor feel them. That is to have an imagination of them. And these ideas are imaginary ideas. And when such kinds of ideas are strongly impressed upon the mind and the image of them in the mind is very lively, almost as if one saw them or heard them. That is called an impression or the imagination. Thus, colors and shapes and a form of countenance, they are outward things because they are that sort of things which are the objects of outward sense of seeing. And therefore, when any Person has in his mind a lively idea of any shape or color or form of countenance that is to have an imagination of those things. So, if he has an idea of such sort of light or darkness as he perceives by the sense of seeing, that is to have an idea of outward light, and so is an imagination. So if he has no idea of any marks made on paper, suppose letters and words written in a book, that is to have an external imaginary idea of such kind of things as we sometimes perceive by our bodily eyes. And when we have the ideas of that kind of things, which we perceive by any other senses, as of any sounds or voices or words spoken. This is only to have ideas of outward things, of such kind of things, are perceived by lively, impressed, almost if they were really heard with the ears. This is to have an impression on the imagination. And so, I might go on and instance the ideas of things appertaining to other three senses of smelling, tasting, and feeling. Many who have had such things have very ignorantly supposed them to be of the nature of spiritual discoveries. They have had lively ideas of some external shape and beautiful form of countenance. And this they call spiritually seeing Christ. Some have had impressed upon them ideas of a great outward light. And this they call a spiritual discovery of God's or Christ's glory. Some have had an idea of Christ hanging on the cross and his blood running from his wounds. And this they call a spiritual sight of Christ crucified and the way of salvation by his blood. Some have seen him with his arms open, ready to embrace them. And this they call a discovery of sufficiency of Christ's grace and love. Some have had lively ideas of heaven and of Christ's on his throne there and shining ranks of saints and angels. And this they call seeing heaven open to them. Some from time to time have had a lively idea of a person of a beautiful countenance smiling upon them. And this they call a spiritual discovery of the love of Christ to their souls mm-hmm. and tasting the love of Christ. And they look upon it a sufficient evidence that these things are spiritual discoveries and that they see them spiritually because they say they do not see things with their bodily eyes, but in their hearts where they can see them with their eyes shut. And in like manner, the imagination of some have been impressed with ideas of the sense of hearing. They have had ideas of words as if they were sunken to them. Sometimes they are the words of Scripture and sometimes other words. They have had ideas of Christ speaking comfortably words to them, these things. They have called the inward call of Christ, hearing the voice of Christ spiritually in their hearts, having the witness of the Spirit and the inward testimony of the love of Christ the common and less considerate and understanding sort of people are the more easily led into apprehensions that these things are spiritual things because spiritual things being invisible and not things that can be pointed forth with the finger, we are forced to use figurative expressions in speaking of them and to borrow names from external and sensible objects to signify them by thus we call a clear apprehension of things spiritually by the name of light and having such an apprehension of such or such things by the name of seeing such things and the conviction of the judgment and the persuasion of the will by the word of christ in the gospel we by spiritually hearing the call of Christ, and the Scripture itself abounds with such like figurative expressions. Persons hearing these often used and having pressed upon them the necessity of having their eyes open and having a discovery of spiritual things and seeing Christ in His glory and having the inward call and the like, they ignorantly, Look and wait for some such external discoveries and imaginary views as have been spoken of. And when they have them are confident that now their eyes are open. Now Christ has discovered himself to them and they are his children and hence are exceedingly affected and elevated with their deliverance and happiness and many kinds of affections are at once set in a violent motion in them. But it is exceedingly apparent that such ideas have nothing in them which is spiritual and divine in the sense wherein it has been demonstrated that all gracious experiences are spiritual and divine. These external ideas are in no wise of such a sort that they are entirely in their whole nature, diverse from all that men have by nature, perfectly different from and vastly above any sensation, which it is possible a man should have by any natural sense or principle, so that in order to have them, a man must have a new spiritual, and divine sense given him in order to have any sensations of that sort. So far from this, that they are ideas of the same sort which we have by external senses that are some of the inferior powers of the human nature. They are merely ideas of of external objects or ideas of that nature, of the same outward sensitive kind, the same sort of sensations of mind, differing not in degree but only in circumstance that we have by those natural principles which are common to us with beasts, the five external senses. This is a low, miserable notion of spiritual sense to suppose that it is only a conceiving or imagining that sort of ideas which we have by our animal sense, which senses the beast have in a great perfection as we. It is as if were a turning Christ or the divine nature in the soul into a mere animal. There is nothing wanting in the soul as it is by nature to render it capable of being the subject of all these external ideas without any new principles. A natural man is capable of having an idea and a lively idea of shapes and colors and sounds when they are absent and as capable as a regenerate man is. So there is nothing supernatural in them. And it is known by abundant experience that it is not the advancing or perfecting human nature which makes persons more capable of having such lively and strong imaginary ideas, but that on the contrary, The weakness of body and mind and distempers of body make persons abundantly more susceptible of impressions. As to a truly spiritual sensation, not only is the manner of its coming into the mind extraordinary, but the sensation itself is totally diverse from all that men have or can have in a state of nature, as has been shown. But as to these external ideas, though the way of their coming into the mind is sometimes unusual, yet the ideas in themselves are not the better for that. They are still no different sort from what men have by their senses. They are of no higher kind nor a whit better. For instance, the external idea man has now of Christ hanging on the cross and shedding his blood is no better in itself than the external idea that the Jews, his enemies had, who stood around his cross and saw this with their bodily eyes, The imaginary idea which men have now of an external brightness and glory of God is no better than the idea the wicked congregation in the wilderness had of the external glory of the Lord at Mount Sinai when they saw it with their bodily eyes. Or any better than that idea which millions of cursed reprobates will have of the external glory of Christ at the day of judgment, who shall see and have a very lively idea of 10,000 times greater external glory of Christ than ever yet was conceived in any man's imagination. Yea, the image of Christ, which men conceive in their imaginations, is not in its own nature of any superior kind to the idea of the papists conceive of Christ by the beautiful and affecting image of him which they see in their churches, though the way of their receiving the idea may not be so bad, nor are the affections they have, if built primarily on such imaginations, any better than the affections raised in the ignorant people. By the sight of those images which oftentimes are very great especially when these images though the craft of the priests are made to move and speak and weep and the like merely the way of persons receiving these imaginary ideas does not alter the nature of the ideas themselves that are received Let them be received in what way they will. They are still but external ideas or ideas of outward appearance and so are not spiritual. Yea, if men should actually receive such external ideas by the immediate power of the Most High God upon their minds, they would not be spiritual. They would be no more than a common work of the Spirit of God, as it is evident in fact in the instance of Balaam, who had impressed on his mind by God himself a clear and lively outward representation of the idea of Jesus Christ as the star rising out of Jacob when he heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High and saw the visions of the Almighty God falling into a trance. Numbers 24:16 and 17. But yet had no manner of spiritual discovery of Christ, that day star never spiritually rose in his heart, he being but a natural man. And as these external ideas having nothing divine or spiritual in their nature and nothing but what natural men without any new principles are capable of, so there is nothing in their nature which requires that peculiar, inimitable, and paralleled exercise of the glorious power of God in order to to their production, which it has been shown there is in the production of true grace. There appears to be nothing in their nature above the power of the devil. It is certainly not above the power of Satan to suggest thoughts to men because otherwise he could not tempt them to sin. And if he can suggest any thoughts or ideas at all, Doubtless imaginary ones or ideas of things external are not above his power for the external ideas men have are the lowest sort of ideas. These ideas may be raised only by impressions made on the body, by moving the animal spirits and impressing the brain. Abundant experiences does certainly show That alterations in the body will excite imaginary or external ideas in the mind as often in the case of a high fever, melancholy, etc. These external ideas are as much below the more intellectual exercises of the soul as is the body a less noble part of man than the soul. And there is not only nothing in the nature of these external ideas or imaginations of outward appearances from whence we can infer that they are above the power of the devil. But it is certain also that the devil can excite and often hath excited such ideas. They were external ideas which he excited in the dreams and visions of false prophets of old who were under the influence of lying spirits that we often read of in Scripture, as in Deuteronomy 13, 1, 1 Kings 22, 22, Isaiah 33, 7, Ezekiel 13, 7. And they were external ideas that he often excited in the minds of the heathen priests, magicians, and sorcerers in their visions and ecstasies. And they were external ideas that he excited in the mind of the man, Christ Jesus, when he showed him all the kingdoms of the world with the glory of them, when those kingdoms were not really in sight. And if Satan or any created being has power to impress the mind with outward representations, then no particular sort of outward representation can be any evidence of a divine power than the shape of anything else. There is no higher kind of power necessary to form in the brain one bodily shape or color than another. It needs no more glorious power to represent the form of the body of a man than from of a chip or block, though it be of a very beautiful human body with a sweet smile in his countenance or arms open or blood running from the feet and side. That sort of power which can represent black or darkness to the imagination can also represent white and shining brightness. The power and skill which can well and exactly paint a straw or a stick of wood or a piece of paper or canvas. The same in kind, only perhaps further improved, will be sufficient to paint the body of a man with great beauty and in royal majesty or a magnificent city paved with gold, full of brightness and glorious throne, etc. So it is no more than the same sort of power that is requisite to paint one as the other of these on the brain. The same sort of power that can put ink upon paper can put on leaf gold so that it is evident to a demonstration. If we suppose it to be in the devil's power to make any sort of external representations at all on the fancy as without doubt it is and never anyone questioned it who believed there was a devil that had any agency with mankind. I say, if so, it is demonstrably evident that a created power may extend to all kinds of external appearances and ideas in the mind. From hence, it again clearly appears that no such things have anything in them that is spiritual, supernatural, and divine, in the sense in which it has been proved that all truly gracious experiences do have. And though external ideas, through man's make and frame, do ordinarily, in some degree, attend spiritual experiences. Yet these ideas are no part of their spiritual experience any more than the motion of the blood and the beating of the pulse that attend experiences are a part of spiritual experience. And though undoubtedly, through men's infirmity in the present state, and especially through the weak constitution of some persons, gracious affections, which are very strong, do excite lively ideas in the imaginations. Yet it is also undoubted that when persons' affections are founded on imaginations, which is often the case, those affections are merely natural and common because they are built on a foundation that is not spiritual and so are entirely different from gracious affections which as has been proved do ever more arise from those operations that are spiritual and divine. Now let us end the reading of religious affections uh, at this time. And next time we will delve even further into the same subject matter. To put it in easy form is simply this, that we are either 100% a natural man or we are 100% a spiritual man. There is nothing in between. And though The natural man may have the Spirit of God come upon him and simulate many of the things of the spiritual. It is still only the natural man getting the booster shot from the Holy Spirit to simulate the spiritual. But the spiritual is like a star. It has its own light. It is totally different than the light shining upon man as opposed to the light being in man, the Spirit of God being in man, the Spirit of Christ being in man, the living water in man, ever vesting up and bubbling over with the love of Jesus Christ in that star, in that new creation. A love far superior to any human love. May the Lord bless thee and keep thee